Well, good morning, Bethel Christian Fellowship. How are you all doing today? Let me know if I need to move my mic at all, if it's getting hot. So, I am Pastor Justin. If you do not know me, I am the youth director here at Bethel Christian Fellowship. And um, normally I like to start my sermons with a joke, but that hasn't been going so well for me lately. Um, And actually, I made a joke a a month or two ago. We had a special leaders meeting where we were talking about vision for the future and looking ahead to what we wanted God to do. And I made a joke about how many people with gray hair were in the room. Um, And I don't know if you're aware of this, but God has a tendency of making me eat my words. So I am bald, as I'm sure you can all tell. I mean, it's like there's nothing left. So I'm just, I've given in. But uh, this week I was in the car with my brother. And I looked in the mirror, and there is a big patch of gray hair on my beard. And I'm 30 years old. Are you guys, you guys hearing my suffering? So I, if you were ever offended by me making a joke about gray-haired people, I'm now one of you. So, um, yeah, I had it coming. I really did. I think, I think Marnie said, Pastor Justin, God's going to make you eat those words. I, was that you that said that to me? So you're, you're a prophetess. I, you were absolutely correct. Um, So yes, uh, we are talking this morning about treasure hidden in a book, and we're going to be preaching out of Psalm 119. I'll be sharing that uh, with you guys towards the end of my sermon. But uh, we're going to be talking about leaning into the strangeness of Scripture so that we can be transformed by it. And raise your hand if you've ever been concerned, confused, or otherwise befuddled by something you've read in the Bible. Just raise your hand. Okay, good. That means you've actually read the Bible. That is super helpful because I think a lot of times in church, especially when we're younger, we feel this pressure to be like, oh yeah, I've read the Bible and I'm super spiritual and I've never questioned anything and we feel like that makes us good Christians. But if you spend enough time with this book, you will be confused, maybe disturbed, maybe upset by what you find. And I think sometimes we have a tendency to pull back when we get into these uncomfortable places. But what I want to encourage you today, and I'll be sharing my own story in a little bit, is that I think the solution to our uncomfortable moments that we're experiencing with Scripture is actually the opposite, to lean into them and uh, to lean into our discomfort. So we've made the decision that 2023 is going to be our year of seeking treasure as a church. And when Pastor Steve told me this idea, I was so thrilled and excited because I just, this idea of going out and seeking treasure, like it's such an actionable vision. Are you with me? Like, this is something that we can all do. And, you know, outpouring was such a great theme for last year, but it it can be sometimes a passive theme where you're waiting to find or discover something that God is already doing. With this, we are going out and we're on a hunt. We have have a role that is active in our theme for this year. And um, I was even more thrilled when he asked me last week if I would speak on seeking the treasure of Scripture because... There are a few things that I am as passionate about um, than this book. And I have it on the floor right here, actually, right now. But this book, um, and I, I'm, I'm not just saying this because I'm a pastor and I have to say this. I believe this is the most sophisticated piece of literature that has ever been crafted in all of human history. And that when you can understand it, on its own level, in its own ways, that it has the most power to change a person. More than, more than force, 
more than like systems of human power like government, more than like social pressure or a video you watched on YouTube. I believe that the, the brilliance of what is happening in this book is the most important thing that a person can experience in this lifetime besides the person of Jesus. And um, so that's what we're talking about. I, I get to share my, one of my biggest passions with you. And so I'm going to be um, sharing my story with you guys. And so young people, if you're in here, teenagers, you've heard me talk about stuff like this endlessly. Youth leaders, you've heard. But I don't think I've put a spin on it quite this way before. So hopefully if you've heard my story before, this is a different way of looking at it than I traditionally share. So I grew up um, the son of two pastors. My father is Stephen Richard Fenton, the Reverend, Stephen Richard Fenton, and my mother is the Reverend Tabitha Joe Fenton, and they were both pastoring um, in a megachurch in the northern Minnesota, Minneapolis suburbs um, for the first 12 years of my life, and then we moved, and they became pastors, senior pastors at a smaller church that I spent the rest of my life growing up in. And while I was growing up in this megachurch, um, my father worked poverty wages. Um, and I don't think that's what people associate very often with megachurches. You assume that they're living large and they're living lush. Um, but at this specific megachurch, my father was working for poverty wages for something that he deeply believed in. In my entire life, my parents have joked about how they qualified for food stamps and government assistance programs, but they were so stubborn that they wouldn't actually do it. And to my horror, I mean, I didn't, I had no idea any of this was going on when I was a kid, but I was like, you qualified for all that good stuff? And you didn't take any, you, you, didn't, you didn't take the free money? And it, it, it was astounding to me when I found that out for the first time, but that was just normal for them. They just, this is what we do. We, we serve in God's kingdom and we sacrifice and we struggle and we trust that God's going to provide. And so this is the environment that I was growing up in. There was no separation between church life and home life, because we would always have people over at our house for an event, or we'd be doing Bible study with our parents at, in the house, and then we'd go to church, and we'd be at church five times a week, and uh, for a while, my mom was a stay-at-home mother and ministering at the church in many different ways, and so I was growing up immersed in this specific church culture, and uh, I grew up in a world of, I think, well-intentioned legalism is the most beneficial way I can describe this, okay? We didn't consider ourselves to be legalists because from the pulpit, we would talk about the grace and the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ, and legalism was not something that you would hear if you showed up on a Sunday morning. It wasn't something that would be taught to you or impressed upon you, but if you stuck around long enough and you got to know people and you got sucked into our church culture you'd start to realize, like, oh, there's terms to my involvement here. Like, you want me to be a very specific type of person if I want to fit in and if I want to be a part. You guys feel what I'm saying? Where you've ever joined any sort of culture, any sort of community, where it's like, oh, you, you have very narrow expectations that you have for me. And I picked up on this immediately, especially when you're a kid and this is your environment, it's all you know, and so you learn how to adapt and you learn how to blend in. And I was really good at blending into this church culture and, and being a part of it. And I got really, um, kind of all the markers that you would have for a good Christian boy was me. Um, I knew Bible stories better than some of my Sunday school teachers. 
And there, one of the things my dad has always joked about was that when I was in fourth grade, they were teaching us a story. I can't remember what it was. But the teacher had mispronounced the name, and I was correcting them. And the teacher complained to my dad after service, saying, hey, your son was like, he was disrupting my authority in the middle of this class by telling everyone that I was wrong. My dad said, well, were you wrong? And the Sunday school teacher said, yes, but that is, that's not the point. He was, he was, you know, he was calling me out. And I mean, this wasn't something that I had earned or done on purpose. It was just the environment that I was growing up in. I'd learned how to fit into the Christian box that was created for me. Um, I was on the worship team. I was in the Christmas plays. I would memorize all the Bible verses when they gave us homework. Um, And by the time I was in fifth grade, I was actually traveling with our youth pastor and his ministry team, and I was doing summer camps um, from the stage. I had a character named Olo Einstein. He was the smartest boy in the world. And he would talk about Jesus and how the smart people follow Jesus, and he would give little object lessons. And I was doing this at a camp, and it was... I didn't realize how unique this was at the time, but it was so special. But as I look back on this period of my life, by the time I entered into middle school, I was already a Pharisee. Like, I'd had a, I knew all the answers, and I'd had all the answers, and I was trained in debate, and if you were an atheist, I could shut you down in 10 minutes quick, and... I'd I'd had this narrow box forced upon me, and I decided that the world needed to fit into my narrow box. And when I read the Bible, it was all about fitting the Bible into the narrow box. Does that make sense? That everything in the Bible was designed and written for this box. And if if what I read in the Bible didn't relate to this narrow little shoebox, then I was misunderstanding something in the Bible, right? Like, no, no, no. The Bible, the Christian community that I was in had the truth, and the Bible existed to support that truth. Are you following me here? And what's terrifying as I look back is that is absolutely backwards, and I'm not blaming anyone for doing that. I don't think that was in their hearts. I don't think they wanted to do that to us, but this is what I picked up in my church community, all right? This is the purpose of the Bible. We use it to prove ourselves right, and we use it to justify our beliefs, I believe that I had a monopoly on truth and that everyone else was grasping at straws to make sense of the world that I'd mastered at 12 years old. (laughs) Um, And it's it's funny to laugh about that now, but I felt like I'd peaked. Like, where else can I go from here? Like, I I might as well just give me the keys to the church, give me the keys to the kingdom, I'll run this thing blind. And um, around the time I went into middle school, thank God, we moved, and I was able to get out of this narrow box because we moved to a different school. We moved to a different church community that had an entirely different church culture. And it allowed me to notice like, oh, these people do things differently here. And no one's like yelling at them or calling them bad Christians. Like, and I wanted to. I was like, no, this is what you're supposed to do. This is the way we did it at, at my mega church. This is the way you're supposed to do it here. And I was like, oh. And so it started to, to break down this box that I'd built this world of expectations, and I started to see some cracks in the worldview that I was raised in as I started reading the Bible more and stepping out of this narrow box, and I started to realize that some of the people that we really liked in our church communities didn't imitate Jesus very well. It didn't, like when they talked, they didn't sound like Jesus. When there was a politician that like everyone would get excited about, 
I'd listen and I'd be like, okay, like, I know I'm supposed to like this person. But I don't think Jesus would say those words that are coming out of this person's mouth right now. Like, and they say that they're following, like, and so there was these things that started to add up, and there was kind of a hatred and a fear of science that I'd been trained into, like, this intense scientific skepticism, and I started to be like, okay, wait a minute. If we believe that God made all of this, isn't studying it a form of worship? Like, looking at this beautiful world that God has created, like, why would I be afraid of asking questions about how he did it? Or trying to make sense of it or puzzle things together. And yeah, like humans are we're flawed and we, have, we make mistakes and we have bad perspectives. And historically, we've always gotten it wrong in some way, right? When it comes to our understanding of this world. But isn't it noble and like honorable to want to, like, I feel like you should be drawing closer to God when you do these things. Not being pushed further away. And most importantly, when I was reading the Bible, I started to notice things that were making me deeply uncomfortable. Like, if you've ever read the story of Noah's Ark, it started to make me uncomfortable because it, it didn't jive with the love that I was hearing from the pulpits. Or I would read about the conquest of the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, and just something in it made my stomach churn. And I was like, and, and, or like, if you've ever read the books of the prophets, sometimes the things that God says in those poems are so intense and terrifying that you're like, I don't want to read this. Like, I don't, I don't know how to process these words that are on a page. And I was this young middle school boy, and it, all of these questions were, were swirling up. And I'd known that if, if I started asking questions, that I wouldn't be allowed to live inside this box anymore. Because I'd been taught that the people that ask questions in doubt are the people that end up destroying the box and walking away from God entirely. And a good Christian just listens to their leadership, they do what they're told, they believe what they're told to believe, and they trust God with everything they don't understand. And, that, and it was this tension that I felt, like, I love God and I want to serve him, but I have these problems that I'm afraid to talk about. And these questions that they tell me that I'm not supposed to ask. Because if I ask them, then I'm going to end up like the atheist. And around this time, I discovered a book called Blue Like Jazz. And if you were in the mid-2000s at any point, this book kind of blew up. And everyone was reading it. And I was reading it when I was in seventh grade. Um, and it was the right book at the right time for me. Because I'm reading this story about this Christian who smokes marijuana and cusses and does all these other stuff. And I was like, wait a minute. You can be obsessed with Jesus and be this much of a mess up? Like, this guy is not fit in the shoebox. Are you with me here? Like, he's talking about his journey of coming to know Jesus as a non-Christian from the outside. And, like, all his struggles and his questions and his doubts and faith. And this was a book on my dad's bookshelf. Pastor Steve Finton was reading this book? And he, let, he gave it to me. He said, here, go ahead, read it. And it felt for the first time in my life like I had permission to ask these questions that I was struggling with. For the first time in my life, I didn't feel like I had to fit into this shoebox. And following him wasn't a shoebox that I had to fit into. It was an adventure that I was able to enjoy as I chased after him and pursued him. And suddenly, these questions and this discomfort that I had with Scripture 
wasn't a threat to my faith. It was the most important thing that I could ever do to build my faith. That engaging with these problems, engaging with my doubts, and engaging with my questions and my offense to the things I was seeing in the Bible was actually the key to my journey with Jesus. And it wasn't this terrifying, I don't know if you've ever seen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, when they're on the boat going through the terror tunnel, and he's singing this song, where are we going Like, it wasn't like that. It was this beautiful journey that I got to go on, and I came to this conclusion, like, I don't even need to have all the answers to these questions to be a good Christian. Like, my shoebox wasn't being destroyed. It was growing. Like, I didn't know, and it was this revolution. It was like a renaissance in my relationship with God. Instead of like, man, the terror, if you would have gone to third grade me, and showed him ninth grade me, I would have been like, how do mom and dad feel about this? Like, are they okay with this? And mom wasn't totally okay with a lot of it. But, but dad had this knowledge, like, this is, he's making his faith his own. He's not just rolling over and saying, mom and dad, I'm going to believe whatever you believe. That if this God is real, I want to know him for myself. I'm not going to take your word for it. So I became enraptured and obsessed with this book towards the end of middle school. And it has defined my life. It was like my brain was being rewired and I was having all of these realizations about stories that I'd heard my entire life and I was like, oh, that's what this is talking about. Like this isn't just some story about how I need to be a good person. This is a part of an entire massive storyline about what God is doing in our world. And this is just one small piece of it. My first point for you is that when we lean into our doubts, our objections, and our concerns with the Bible, we can discover beauty and truth that shatters and transcends our narrow worldviews. And one of the things that I love about this church is you get to see within the family of the nations the other ways that people are interacting with Jesus and the other ways that people are seeing him. And that sometimes the narrow boxes that we construct for ourselves, if it has to be this way, this is the only way to be a Christian, like, no. We are beholding an infinite God. We are not beholding a small God. And we don't need to be afraid of asking a question that's bigger than him. We don't need to be afraid of encountering some obstacle in this book that he is not already ahead of and has has himself allowed to exist. Because he's going to bring all things together in the end for his glory. Even our doubts. And so I'll say this again. I know I'm supposed to love this book, all right? It's my job. I've committed my entire adult life to this. Without a shadow, I mean, I used to have shadows of doubts about this book. But as I have spent my life studying and trying to understand this book, there is no doubt left. This is the most sophisticated, 
divinely inspired work in human history. If you wanted to reproduce it or, or supplant it or make something better than this book, you wouldn't be able to. The greatest minds in our world, and I say this as someone who understands the strangeness. This is a 3,000-year-old document in some parts, okay? It does not reveal its secrets to us quickly or easily. And you will never get to see all that it has to offer. But this is a treasure, and this is why I have my little jewel uh, lampshade here with me today. And we're going to talk about this a couple more times. We're going to come back to it in different ways as we go forward today. I think most people, and this is such a tragedy, I think most people only ever read the Bible in three ways. And these are not bad ways, but if these are the only three ways you ever read the Bible, then you are missing out. First, we tend to read the Bible through our own eyes, and that's the most natural, right? You open up the Bible, this is what you do without even thinking. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, this is the place that we all have to start when we encounter this book. You read the Bible through your own eyes. Or we read the Bible as a devotional or self-help book where you're looking for that right verse, right? Like, I need some encouragement today. I need to know that God loves me and he's with me and he's, he loves me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to search through for the right psalm. I'm going to search through for that right verse or that right, that right paragraph in the New Testament that just hits me in the right spot. You see, these aren't bad. These are not bad ways of reading the Bible. Or we read the Bible as a rule book if we want to know how God wants us to live. And I believe that the rules in the Bible will give you life if you let them. And they, if, if you are wise about the way you interact with them, they won't turn you into a Pharisee. They will illuminate you. They'll elevate you in different ways. But if these are the only three ways that you interact with Scripture, I'm, I'm telling you, church, there is a treasure that you are not seeing at this point in time. And I just want to help you see that treasure, and I want to help reveal it for you today. So, let me, oh, sorry, I got to bump ahead. So the first way that I want to talk about this is reading the Bible through the lens of its original authors. And so I feel like this, is, this should be obvious to us. You might hear me say this and roll your eyes a little bit. But the people that wrote this book had an entirely different worldview than you and I do. Entirely different. Their world was simple to a T. Sometimes we look back and we think over simple. The Bible was not written to people living in the 21st century. The Bible was written to people who believed the world was flat. Okay? That alone, if you read the Bible using that lens in different ways. You're going to be like, oh, that's an interesting thought. That is an interesting, I never noticed that. The Bible was written to people whose lives were defined by violence in ways that you and I will hopefully never understand. We, we have created one of the safest societies in human history. And they didn't have that luxury. The Bible was written to people who had to kill an animal if they wanted to eat meat, okay? And that sounds, I mean, raise your hand if you've killed something that you've eaten. Okay. Raise your hand if you like, I could never, ever kill something and then eat it with my hands. 
right? For some of us, that is a horrifying thought because we are disconnected from our food sources, right? Most of us don't have to farm in order to survive. Most of us don't have to raise animals, say, hi, Bambi, I love you, and then kill them in order to eat, all right? That is a horrifying thought to us, but it was, this is what you had to do to survive in the ancient world. And if you wanted to be made right with God in their world, ooh, took my mic off. And if you wanted to be made right with God in this world, you had to kill an animal in order to do that. You had to watch this animal bleed out and die on your behalf. And so their relationship to the world around them was profoundly different than ours. And it's important to know that God was working with their worldview when he wrote this book. Not ours. The Bible was written to answer their questions about the world, not yours. And I believe this fully and wholeheartedly, that when we import our worldview onto the Bible and try to force it to, like, say what I want you to say, right? Let me twist these verses. Let me take a bunch of stuff and gather it all together. Like, if we try to force our worldview onto this book it is like you are walking into a museum of ancient artifacts with a can of spray paint. That you are destroying something that is beautiful and valuable as it is. It doesn't need our modern Western polish to make it good, to make it worth investing in. And you're going to do that without, okay, I'm going to give you some grace. You're going to do that on accident, okay? You can't help but bring the can of spray paint. That's okay. Okay, you can forgive yourself, God's going to forgive you, because we are all doing the best that we can in many different ways. And this book is designed to help us. The authors of the Bible believed that this work was a multifaceted jewel. And depending on where you stood in the room, and where you stood in relation to it, and where the light was hitting it at that specific moment in time, you would notice something different every time you looked at it. And then if someone was standing on the other side of the room looking at this beautiful, divinely inspired jewel, they wouldn't be noticing the same things that you notice. The light would catch it just a little differently. Maybe the light was shining right in their eyes and they're like, oh, I can't handle this. This is too much for me right now. But if we step out of our own eyes, and step into theirs and say, okay, I'm, I tend to stand over here, but when they were writing this book, they were over here. What are they seeing that I'm not in this jewel, in this treasure? What am I missing because I've only ever read this book in one way or two ways or three ways? And if it's ever hard for you to see the beauty in this book, and you need to try that. If it's hard for you to find value when you look at this book, you look at this jewel and you're like, ah, you know, it doesn't work for me, you know? It worked for them, right? Like, how arrogant is it <laughs> to say, like, oh, it's not, it's, it's not for me, right? I mean, step out of you and step into, into, the, into their worldview. Let's go next. Alternative way of reading the Bible, number two, reading the Bible through the lens of another cultural experience. 
And I feel like Bethel Christian Fellowship, you guys get this better than anybody else, all right? Any other, no other church in the Twin Cities has as many unique cultural experiences in one place than this church. And the only way you will ever get to see how someone else in a different culture views this jewel is if you listen to them. If you interact with them, if you get uncomfortable and you say, what do you see when you look at this? Because I know, you know what you see, right? That's old news. But the way another person sees and looks at this jewel has the power to transform your understanding of the world. And you don't need to be afraid of that narrow box being destroyed because the box doesn't get destroyed, it gets bigger. One of the things that has been a blessing to me since I've come to this church, um, I was teaching out of the book of Daniel, um, talking about exile. Um, and basically the Israelites, they were defeated by Babylon, and they took all the nobility and the upper class individuals, and they shipped them off as exiles to Babylon to benefit the court. So they trained them in the Babylonian language. They taught them how to live in Babylonian society, and they used these highly educated, wealthy individuals to benefit Babylon. And so we talked about the story of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And I'm using those names on purpose because those were their Israelite names. But when they got carted off to Babylon, the Babylonians were like, no, we want you to use some of our names. So we're going to call you Balthazar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those are the names that I think when I was a kid, that was the names they preferred to use, right? When they were teaching us the VeggieTale story, it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When I was preaching about this story to the youth in the first couple of months that I was here, and in the room was a group of Karen students. And about half of them still had their Karen names. And the other half had taken on American names because we struggle too much to say their names right. So to make things easier for us, they changed their names because they were trying to assimilate to Babylonian society. And in the middle of my sermon, I had this realization, like, oh, this means way more to you than it's ever going to mean to me. Are you with me? And it was this, like, lightning flash of a moment. I got chills running down the back of my neck. I was like, oh, this story is not as powerful to me as it is to you because you're in this story. You got carted off away to another culture where you had to learn a new language and you had to change your name to fit in better. And honestly, if you, if you make a direct comparison between the nation, sorry, the empire of America and the empire of Babylon, we look pretty Babylonian, all right? You don't become the, the most significant military power on the earth by imitating Jesus. It doesn't happen. So when I, whenever I read back to the story of the exile, I naturally just slip into like the way that they read this story. I think of them every time. Because they're in it. If it's hard for you to see the beauty of this book in your modern context, I beg you to join others in theirs. Because it will radically transform the way you see the world.
And there's another recommendation that I have is for a book. Um, Reading While Black by Esau McCulley is a book about the way that the black church in America has interpreted Scripture and the way it's different than the way traditional white American churches have interpreted Scripture through their mistreatment in America. The way, the way their cultural experience has been shaped has influenced the way they view this beautiful jewel. And this book was the Christianity Today Book of the Year in 2021. And if, if you want to practice this in some way, that, that might be a good place for you to start. If maybe you're a little socially awkward and you're afraid to talk to people and ask them questions, this is a safe place for you to start trying to view the Bible through a different cultural experience. And our third way of reading the Bible that we're going to talk about today is reading the Bible through the different phases of your life. Psalm 1, verse 1 through 3, and I've amended the first verse just a little bit. Oh, the joys of those who do not follow the advice of the wicked, but they delight in the laws of the Lord, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. And this image that I love in this verse, it's not that they prosper for a season. It's that as the summers and the springs and the winters and the falls come and go, they're planted next to this treasure, this life-giving treasure. And if you're a tree that's planted by a stream, you start off as a sapling, right? And your relationship with the stream is different when you're a sapling. You need, your root systems don't function the same way. They're underdeveloped. You can only get so much out of the stream. But each season, as your roots spread out and they go deeper, you're touching different parts of the stream. You're getting more nu- nutrients out of the water. And it's, you're actually accessing different parts of soil even, too. And season after season, this river hasn't really changed that much, but you have. And I want you to imagine the way you view this jewel today. might not change a lot in a year, right? You might move over here. Like, that's mostly the same, right? You see a couple new things. But in five years, I come back to this book, and it hasn't changed, but I have. And I am seeing this work from an entirely different angle. Just in my own, my perspective has changed. My outlook, five years ago, I didn't have a son. Like, the way that I viewed this jewel, now that I have a child, I tell you what, when I read verses about God being my father, I'm like, okay. Like, I thought I knew, but I I didn't know. And when I view, uh, and Isaiah, I think it's Isaiah 43, when he talks about how could I ever forget you, Israel? Could a mother nursing her child at her breast ever forget about her child, even if it were possible? I could never forget about you. And it's like, oh, man, like, I get it now. In 10 years, where am I going to be as I look at this? If God tarries and I live to retirement, I I am an entirely different person than I am when I'm 30 years old. The gray hairs have just started. The wisdom's just getting here. When I'm in 30 years, if God, God willing, I am going to be seeing something entirely different. And if it's hard for you to see some value in this jewel right now, lean into it anyways. 
Soak up as much as you can, even if it's not connecting, right? Even if you're reading it and you're like, I don't get this. This is weird. Like, why are they slitting the throats of lambs? Why are they sacrificing doves? Like, what is going on in this book? Soak it in now, because you're never going to see it this way again. You only get to view the jewel this way today. And I don't know how to talk about this without being, being melodramatic or gushing, um, if that isn't obvious enough. I am captured, enraptured, entranced, whatever word, I mean, I will never be able to release the grip that this book has on me. And I want the same for you. And I know it can be hard, and I know it can be difficult, but there are so many good resources out there, but there is so much treasure to be discovered that I do not want you to miss. When we lean into our doubts, objections, and concerns with the Bible, we discover its beauty and truth that has the power to transcend our narrow worldview. If you read the Bible through the lens of its original authors, if you read the Bible through the lens of another cultural experience, or if you read the Bible through the different phases of your life, you will be discovering why this book is a treasure, why it's been preserved for 3,000 years, why it has been so impactful and influential throughout all of human history. It just means being uncomfortable and stretching yourself and being challenged by it. And before we go on, I just want to encourage you uh, to take some practical steps. If, you, if the Bible is difficult for you, I want to recommend the Illustrated NLT Study Bible. Uh, it's what I have right here. It's this big old honking thing. This is like the really fancy version that we give to our students when they graduate Illuminate. Um, so it's soft cover and it's got the gold pages. But there are, honestly, guys, like pretty inexpensive versions that you can get that are hardcover, that are kind of normal looking. Yeah. And, you know, some people have a problem with this translation of the Bible because it's a paraphrase. But in my experience, this is the most easy to read and understand version of the Bible. And the study notes are so good that it's okay that it's a paraphrase because you have these massive chunks of explainer discussion at the bottom that give you all the stuff that you would be missing if you had a literal translation or one that was closer to the original Hebrew. And if you're like, Pastor Justin, that's okay. Paraphrases make me uncomfortable. I want exactly, word for word, what it says in the original languages. My second recommendation to you would be the New American Standard Bible, because it is probably, I mean, I think it's considered to be the best literal translation into English that we have. The only downside is that if you're reading in public and you break out the New American Standard Bible, it's going to be rough, all right? It is not a Bible for reading in public. If you want something that is easy reading and makes you sound like really good, NLT is probably my number one. Message is great, but message is kind of even more of a paraphrase than the NLT. And yeah, I do, I read a Bible translation that you can understand. You don't need to make things harder for yourself. You don't get extra points with Jesus for reading something that makes no sense to you. Are you with me? Like, I'm reading the words, Jesus, I hope you're happy, nothing's going in, but like... You know, the King James, the original King James, was necessary in its day. But there's a reason that we made a new King James. Or the ESV or the NIV. 
Whatever allows you to see this book as a treasure is okay. Don't let your translation become an obstacle for you. I have some books that I, I want to recommend to you if you're struggling in any ways. And if you want to talk after service with me, like Pastor Justin, I'm struggling with this concept or this idea or this, this take on scripture. I would love to encourage you and point you in the directions that have helped me. Um, Reading While Black by Esau McCauley is fantastic for reading the Bible through a different cultural experience. Ancient Near Eastern Thought in the Old Testament by John Walton has blown my mind in so many different ways when he talks about, like, sometimes scholars are like, oh yeah, the Bible has so many similarities to other cultures in the ancient Near East. And John Walton comes in and he's like, yeah, duh, because they're debating the ancient cultures in the Near East. They're arguing with them. They're saying, you think the Bible, you think God and the, and the cosmos function in this way, but actually, the God that made the cosmos is doing these things. He's working in these ways. This book is pretty academic, and it's, it can be a big, overwhelming read, but it, if you have the brain for it, it is so great. Um, How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball is a lot easier of a read if you're interested in some of the things in the Bible that might make you uncomfortable. We actually went through this book in the youth, with, in the youth ministry with our students. And it's got a lot of, like, if you have objections to anything from, like, the evolution versus creationism debate, if you have objections with the way women in the Bible are addressed and treated, if you have objections about any other specific things, this book is specifically written to help walk you through the background behind some of this stuff in the Bible and to help you make decisions as you decide what you want to believe the Bible has to say. Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, I feel like this one is well known at Bethel as you guys have become this multicultural hub. But Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes is fantastic if you want to open your eyes to the way the people who wrote the Bible understood it. And if you want some science fiction that will kind of mess with your brain a little bit and the way you see the world, the Space Trilogy by C.S. Lewis is so good. And it's, it's old, it was written in the 50s, I think, so it's a little out there and different sometimes, but man, when C.S. Lewis hits, he hits hard and powerfully and good. So before we go into worship today, I want to invite you just in prayer with me to lean into the strangeness of Scripture so that you can be transformed by it. And the psalmist, when they wrote Psalm 119, said, I rejoice in your word like one who discovers a great treasure. And it is my prayer, Bethel Christian Fellowship, that we would all discover new treasure in this book, that we would all be captured by it, Father. Would you, would you use your Holy Spirit to reveal things to us in this book that would the box become so big when we think of you, when we think of your plans for our world, when you... When you when we think of your love and your intentions for us, would you make this box so big that we can't see the edges of it anymore, Father? Would you give us a sense of awe for who you are and what you can do that can be so difficult to find in this world that we live in? And Father, would you speak out of Scripture? Would you speak out of the people that we are in relationship and community with? Father, in whatever way possible, would you get through to us so we can see what you are doing, and be captured by it. In your name, amen. Worship team, you can come on up. I just want to encourage you, Bethel Christian Fellowship.
to do something. Don't just sit back and, Pastor Steve, if you want to come up and say something, you, you absolutely can. Right? So I want to encourage you, as you leave today, stay in worship with us as long as you feel God needs you to. But would you be blessed and encouraged to discover new treasures? In Jesus' name, amen.